This is the World War II Radio Podcast. A date which will live in infamy. This is London. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Go ahead, Berlin. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Welcome to the World War II Radio Podcast. This week we have the NBC Morning News update from April 25th, 1941, 80 years ago today, with reports on the war from England, Germany, and Washington. It's important to note that while the United States had yet to enter the war, Europe was about to mark its 600th day of war, as is mentioned during the broadcast. The World War II Radio Podcast is a Brick Pickle Media production. If you like the show, please leave feedback on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. You can also support the show by clicking on the link in the show notes and offering your financial support. Your donations help us continue to produce the podcast. Thanks to those who have already donated. So thanks for listening, and enjoy this week's episode of the World War II Radio Podcast. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. It's time again for you to hear from our reporters in England, Germany, and Washington. This morning, John McVeigh reports from London, Theodore Knaut from Berlin, and Earl Godwin gives you his observations and findings in Washington from our newsroom in that city. First, let's hear from our reporter in England. Go ahead, London. This is London. German raids on Britain last night were on a small scale. Bombs fell in southeast and northeast England, but casualties and damage are said to be small. Thousands of firebombs fell on a district in southern England, but only one big fire was started, and that was soon put out. London had its second successive night without a raid alarm. The Royal Air Force last night attacked Kiel and Wilhelmshaven. Kiel was the main objective, and fires were raised in the shipyards and industrial areas. Other attacks were made during the night on docks and other objectives on the coasts of Norway, Holland, Belgium, and France. Two British planes didn't return to their base. In daylight yesterday, a tanker was set on fire off the coast of Norway by the Bomber Command, and fighters carried out offensive patrols over aerodromes in occupied France. Dispatches reaching London from Vichy say that the French Pacific island of Tahiti has declared itself for General de Gaulle. A ship's company is said to have mutinied and seized the governor's palace in the arsenal. Most of the Frenchmen on the island rallied to the free French general, and there was little fighting. The British government announced today that new minefields have been laid along the coast of Libya and Egypt and along the Turkish, Greek, Albanian, Yugoslavian, and Italian coasts. The British announcement noted that the German and Italian governments have recently announced that the eastern Mediterranean, the Aegean Sea, and the greater part of the Adriatic are dangerous to shipping. Today's London press features without comment the statements made yesterday by Mr. Hull and Colonel Knox. Accounts of the speech cabled from New York indicate to British readers that America is about ready to convoy war supplies and food to Britain. Typical front page headlines on the story in British papers are Convoys, Decision is Eminent, and Atlantic Convoys Soon is U.S. Hint. The Balkan campaign and the German thrust to Egypt have brought home to the average Britisher the realization that the British Navy, in trying to guard the Atlantic lifelines 
and at the same time keep control of the Mediterranean, has more work than it can handle. At the present rate, British merchant shipping losses in the Atlantic are extremely serious. We have no figures on the percentage of American war materials that are being sunk, but Lord Beaverbrook's reference to a steady drain on such materials from German attacks confirmed what most Britishers have long suspected. The Manchester Guardian today lends point to the argument that full American support is necessary for an allied victory by an editorial entitled Still Half Arms. The Guardian emphasizes that in current output of arms, Germany is still well ahead of Britain alone. And that although figures are difficult to get, Germany may be spending at least a third more for armaments than Britain. The Guardian says Germany is spending 60 to 70 percent of its gross national income for arms, while Britain is still spending about a half. The paper points out that by 1942, the combined war effort of Britain and the United States will outstrip Germany. Most informed Britishers are worried about the war materials that are being sunk at a time when Britain needs every gun and every plane she can get. The problem of the British Navy is now, and has been for several months, how to spare the naval vessels necessary to give a convoy proper protection. Convoys have been brought through safely with far fewer escort vessels than the minimum thought necessary. But many sinkings have been due to the fact that two or three destroyers were trying to do the work of ten. Aircraft carriers and more long-range fighters could probably nullify the threat of the long-distance German bombers. But here again, the British have their hands full in the Mediterranean and can't spare the aircraft for the Atlantic. You may remember how the German penetration of Bulgaria and Romania started, with Germans in civilian clothes quietly taking over key points. Today, dispatches reaching London from Lisbon seem to indicate that the same method is being followed in Spain. One report published in the London Times says that at least 2,500 Germans are now in Madrid in various guises. Aerodromes up and down Spain, the Times correspondent says, have their full complement of German ground staffs and supplies. And in the starving country, there are big German dumps of food and gasoline at strategic points. The Daily Telegraph says that these food stores may be stocked partly with American and British supplies recently shipped to Spain. Careful check is kept on the food assignments, and it was found recently that a considerable quantity of wheat had mysteriously disappeared, although it was known that none had left the country. The amount is said to be too large to be accounted for by petty theft or private hoarding, and it is believed the Germans, acting through agents, bought the food supplies and stored them for an emergency. This is John McVeigh in London, returning you to the National Broadcasting Company in New York. In just ten hours from now, 600 days under the darkness of war will have become history to most of the peoples of England and Germany. Let's hear now from another of our staff of American radio reporters keeping you abreast of developments abroad. All right, Berlin. NBC, this is Theodore Knott speaking from Berlin. The German command announces that Captain Otto Kretschmar, one of Germany's most successful submarine commanders and decorated with the oak leaves of the Iron Cross, is a prisoner in the hands of the British. German troops have taken the pass of Thermopylae after a stubborn defense by Australian troops, who in their retreat were forced to leave behind them much war material and prisoners as well. Panic is said to prevail in Athens, but the news that the city has been taken by the Germans is not confirmed here. 
It will be announced when the time comes, but the Germans are risking no unnecessary losses in the last stages either of their advance into Greece. In Greek and Cretan waters, further numerous transport ships were hit by German bombs yesterday. Thirty-seven planes were destroyed in a flying field at Argos, and six more at Medara, as well as 26 motor cars. Yesterday's bombing of England took place at an unnamed town on the southern coast, and in southeastern England, and in southeastern England, and the British too raided German coastal towns, with damage it is announced here only to residential districts. Yesterday, Adolf Hitler received the Regent of Hungary, Admiral Haughty, in his headquarters in the field, the location of which is a matter of mystery. This is the third of such meetings to be held this past week, following that of King Boris of Bulgaria on Sunday and of Count Ciano of Italy at about the same time. And it is a safe guess that all three of them are connected with the rearrangement that is due to take place in the Balkan Peninsula at the expense of Yugoslavia. Hungary, Bulgaria, and Italy, too, may be expected to benefit by the German victory in the way of enlarged territory for themselves. The address of Colonel Lindbergh in New York, urging America to keep out of the war and interpreted here as giving up England's cause as lost, is given wide attention and is fairly extensively quoted. The return of Matsuoka to Japan and the ratification of the pact he made with Russia, which now goes into effect, gives the Furkish Beobachter an opportunity to review his trip to Europe and the results that it achieved. The value of direct contact with the heads of the Axis powers, Japan's allies in the three-power pact, is stressed. The pact with Russia has freed Japan from the danger of having to fight a war on two fronts. In the end, strengthens the three-power pact position and puts a stop to Anglo-American intrigue, the paper believes, and from American and British press comments, the Japanese people can take a certain grim satisfaction as it realizes the grief that is hidden behind the somewhat cool way in which the pact has been received. America will have to be more careful in its Far Eastern policy. The Chinese must be disillusioned, but there are still great obstacles in the way of Japan's mission in the Far East. Matsuoka's task is not yet ended, but he can start from a much better position in carrying on his policy further. So thinks the Turkish Obafta. The, the problem of providing Germany with light beer, reminiscent of the near beer of American Prohibition days, was taken up seriously by the assembled German brewers in their con convention in Munich, says the Deutsche Allgemeine Zeitung. Light beer must be tasty, refreshing, nutritious, cheap, and it must not have more than half a percent of alcohol, which is the point on which Dr. Conti, the head of the health department, insists the most. So far, the new beverage does not seem to have got beyond the experimental stage, and while the brewers say that they are quite prepared to go ahead, their enthusiasm does not seem to be very great. In any event, the efforts of Dr. Conti in his fight against alcohol and tobacco will be followed with sympathetic interest in America when it thinks back on the Prohibition era. <clears throat> Speaking of tobacco, I may say that the German housewives take a smiling pleasure at the sight of their menfolk standing in line in front of the tobacco shops to get their daily cigar or package of cigarettes. Cigar stores take a longer noon closing period than ever now, and the sign that indicates no, good, no goods on hand are on display more often than not. And when even a small crowd is seen outside a store, it is an indication that something is to be had there, and at once a line forms while the housewives on their way back from market 
chuckled to themselves. Spain and Portugal are coming back into the news now, but it is insisted here that German threats to both those countries are a device of British propaganda, anxious to distract attention from the Balkan and North African defeats and anxious to stir up trouble elsewhere. This is Theodor Knaut speaking from Berlin and returning you to NBC. You've heard from John McVeigh in London and Theodore Knaut in Berlin. Now, Earl Godwin reports to you from our newsroom in Washington. Good morning, folks. And in the midst of all the confusion, it must have been reassuring to Britain, at least, to hear the unperturbed Cordell Hull, our Secretary of State, and many of us think that he's America's deepest thinking and clearest thinking statesman, tell the world that the aid we are endeavoring to manufacture must reach its destination in the shortest time and in maximum quantity, and so ways and means must be found to do this. So also the Secretary of the Navy, Frank Knox, of course, who has been far ahead of the administration on the matter of battling our way across the ocean. Knox has been ready to shoot it out for many months. And so his statement on the subject is nothing new. But there is a world of help to Britain, morally at least, in the firm attitude of the Secretary of State, whose speech last night to the Foreign Policy Association seemed to me to be a masterpiece of disgust and invective against what he calls privately the banditry of the Axis. He envisions the warlords over there as making war without provocation and having ravaged the country trying to kill the souls of the individual people. He sees the greatest thing that people can have is freedom, and Mr. Hull believes it's being slowly poisoned and changed so that life in a ravaged country is no longer happy. And so it is obvious, obvious that we are going to get the goods over there if we're permitted to keep on manufacturing them. And reports are going around that 40% of the goods we have shipped have been sunk. Well, that's not official. It may be true and it may not be true. But one view of the situation was expressed by Representative Patrick of Alabama on the floor of the House, who reminded his colleagues that we are pledged the $7 billion program of aid to our friends in England. Shall we see that go for naught and be scattered all over the bottom of the ocean, asked Patrick. Davy Jones' locker is no place for the sweat and blood and bone of the American people. It seems to me and seems to many of us here in Washington who are watching and observing and reporting that the stage is being set for a stroke, a master stroke of leadership, whether you like it or not. For instance, in addition to the direct action appeals by Secretaries Hull and Knox yesterday, the Secretary of Agriculture, Wickard, who certainly isn't a warlike gentleman, let a neat little hint creep into a speech that he made. To farmers, Mr. Wicker declared that the chronicle of the war from a democracy standpoint has been a story of, quote, too little and too late, close quote. Did you ever see five words that more aptly expressed the situation? And he asserted that millions of Americans are getting sick of that story. Then also Secretary Morgenthau, who did not have a military theme throughout his tax dissertation yesterday, but in his testimony before the House Ways and Means Committee, Morgenthau asserted that $3.5 billion in new taxes is a small price to pay for liberty. Whatever the price, said uh, Henry Morgenthau, Jr., the American people will be willing to pay for it. Now, these speeches may or may not have had combined significance. 
But we who are watching for you and for your benefit here in Washington believe that they do have a significance that will eventuate in something drastic right soon. And Earl Godwin says goodbye. That's all from Washington at this time. Tomorrow morning, at this same hour, you'll again hear from our reporters abroad and from Earl Godwin in Washington. Today, we invite you to remain tuned to this station for up-to-the-minute news. Your newspaper lists all of our regularly scheduled news periods. This is the National Broadcasting Company.